you you really ministered to um, to my children. Did any of you hear Stephanie at all during that song? <laughs> Did any of you hear Stephanie when uh, Jake said, "Let's sing, Jesus Love Me"? She just went. <gasps> I had my doubts before we we're going to sing that song, but I that's a thank you very much. So that was good. Um. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Malachi. As you're turning there, I want to tell you of an encounter I had with uh, some pastors several weeks ago. I was talking to them. They were part of the same church. And um, in the midst of our conversations and discussions, one of the things that came up was the particular difficulties that uh, their church had been going through. I'd gone through in some time past, maybe about a year ago, a year and a half ago or so. And as I talked to each of these guys, and there were several of them who were pastors at at this church, um, as I talked with each of them, they explained a little bit of what was was going on. They they confessed mistakes that they had made. Um, They had um, confessed to some foolishness that they had exhibited as a result of, you know, some things they did and where the church was. And And to a man, every single one of these pastors said, but the Lord is faithful. But the Lord is faithful. He said something like, well, boy, I can't can't believe we did this, and yet, but the Lord is faithful. Or this took place, and it's really hard, but the Lord is faithful. And in, in repeating that phrase again and again and again, I think there are really two purposes in that. First of all, there was a great comfort that came to their minds that through it all, the Lord sustained them and helped them in times of distress. But second, it was also an opportunity for them really to lift high God and give Him glory for sustaining them through their trials. They were telling all who were present, all who heard, God is, is worthy to be trusted because He's faithful. And down through the ages, the Lord's people have always found those words to be true. The Lord is faithful. It's comfort to our souls. It's an opportunity Proclaim His goodness. When you think about the faithfulness, one verse comes, the faithfulness of God, one verse comes to mind in my mind. I'm not sure if it comes to mind in yours. When you think about it, what comes to mind first? The faithfulness of God. Any verse come to mind? I'm looking for one answer, so you might, there's lots of verses, but. Lamentations 3, Jake, 22 and 23, exactly, right? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, and His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm not sure if you realize the context in which Jeremiah wrote those words. They're words of great difficulty and distress for Judah, their time in their history. They're in the midst of being conquered from, from Nebuchadnezzar coming from Babylon, and he was going to take many of them away captive. In fact, some of them are taken captive. I, I think it's Lamentations 1, verse 2 that says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your streets are desolate. Because nobody's here because they've all been captured, killed, or taken away. And though Israel was facing a time of famine and destruction and violence and abandonment, in the midst of that time, the, the, the peak of lamentations, Jeremiah says, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They were a comfort to him, but they're also an opportunity for him to give glory to God. Well, this morning we are going to take aim again once more at the faithfulness of God. It's really the the theme of this section of Scripture we're going to be looking at. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. 
Throughout Malachi, we've seen the people of God forget the things of God. And Malachi is bringing them up to remembrance. Um, and it's been very explicit, the things they've forgotten. They've forgotten His love, chapter 1, verse 2. They'd forgotten His honor, chapter 1, verse 6. They had forgotten His covenant, chapter 2, verse 10. They had forgotten His justice, chapter 2, verse 17. In, in, our, in our passage today, it's not quite as clear, but I, I do believe that they'd forgotten His faithfulness. They'd forgotten the fact that God was faithful. And so my message title this morning is appropriately, Don't Forget His Faithfulness. I want to read for you verses 6 through 12. <clears throat> for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed. For you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. We see the theme of God's faithfulness coming up here in chapter 3, verse 6, which I'm calling my first point. He's faithful to His covenant He's faithful to His covenant. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are, are not consumed. Now, what's interesting about this verse <clears throat> is that some, some uh, translations of Scripture will link this verse to what came previous. Uh, in fact, the New American Standard does that. There's no paragraph break between five, verse 5 and verse 6. There's a paragraph break in verse 7 because it, it links it to what happened before. Other translations, like the English Standard Version, connect verse 6 with the following section. So, verse 6 starts with a, a new paragraph, and then everything goes below that. And the, the difficulty with this is because this verse here forms a really transition between the previous section and uh, the section that we're looking at today. Um, in fact, even last week, as I was preparing my message, I initially had verse 6 with my message last week, and it could have fit. But I ran out of time, so I said, well, I'll just push it off till next week because I know it fits this week because it fits just right in there. Last week, I spoke about the justice of God. And one of the implications of the justice of God is that He will judge evildoers, right? That's verse 5, what it's talking about. Then I will draw near for you for judgment. God's talking to the people in Israel. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely. And he gets those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Though Israel may have doubted the justice of God, chapter 2, verse 17, and though Israel may have claimed that the Lord is looking favorably upon those who are doing evil, therefore not judging them, God says, I don't change. I am a God of justice and I will punish the evildoers. Oh, it might come a bit slower than you think, but it, but it will. I want to 
illustrate this for you. I should have maybe maybe shown this to you last week, but I didn't think about it until this week, so I thought this was really good. I have uh, in here just some some strange things. I have in here <clears throat> some balloons from... Now, some of you men will, will recognize these balloons. These came from uh, my 40th surprise birthday party where I'm over the hill. Oh, no, the big 4-0. And um, for some reason, I just I haven't thrown these away yet. And I don't know why. And, and they've been out in my garage. Even I've, like, tripped over them. And uh, it just struck me this week that these things are destined for judgment, right? And um, justice will be served on these because balloons just don't last. Balloons aren't meant to be thrown away. And these are destined for judgment. But I just haven't thrown them away yet. And that's a perfect picture of what's happening here. It's not that I've changed. It's not that I'm going to put these up on my wall forever. And this is like a month and a half ago. I've keeping these. I'm amazed that these balloons are kept kept their air like that. But they are destined for judgment because of their wicked ways, right? <laughs> I mean, anytime you're making fun of somebody for being over the hill, for being 40, that's a wicked and evil thing. And um, <laughs> these are destined for judgment. But, but in my mercy, I've let them stick around for a month and a half. And that's just what God does in His justice. But I've not changed. These are going to be thrown... In fact, they're going to be thrown away today, all right? So they are... <laughs> They are gone. That is the justice of God. And that is the point right here. I am a God of justice. The wicked will be punished. I've not changed. I've not changed my ways. I'm still the same. I will punish them. And in that way, verse 6 sums up the previous section. But the way the verse ends seems to look forward to the theme we're going to look at today. I'm going to read verse 6 for you again. I want you to look closely at the end and think about how it, how it works. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, it's a concluding word, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Okay, catch the logic of that verse. I don't change, right? I'll judge the wicked. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, what would you expect? What would you expect? They, you also will be consumed. But he says, you will not be consumed. Say, what is happening there? God says in verse 5, He's going to judge the sorcerers, adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the orphan and widow, the alien, those who don't fear the Lord. And in fact, throughout the book of Malachi, they are guilty of these very sins. They are guilty of committing adultery. There are many in the land who forsook the bond of matrimony, who pursued other wives. Unfaithful in the marriage. There were those in the land who swore falsely. Chapter 1, verse 14. I'll bring the best of my, my flock. And then when they come, they didn't bring the best of their flock. They swore falsely. There were those who didn't fear the Lord. That came in chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 8. I mean, why don't you bring the best to the Lord? It's because you ultimately don't fear Him. And so this list of sins that God would judge didn't fall on deaf ears in Malachi's day. They said, oh, we're guilty of those things. We are guilty of those things. And I think that verse 5 came with a weight about it because he was listing the very sins that Israel had committed. But that's not quite what verse 6 seems to say. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. How do you explain it? That, that God will judge those engaged in wickedness. And there were those in Israel at this very time who were committing these very sins. 
And the Lord affirms of His unchanging character in these ways. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you're not consumed. It's because there's something bigger going on. It's because God's faithful to His covenant. He's being faithful to His people. Therefore, He's not consuming them. In the book of Malachi is all about God's declaration of His love to Israel. Even in their disobedience. Chapter 1, right? Verse 2, I've loved you. He goes on to demonstrate how, how loving He's been to them. He says, eat them. I've always squashed them. But you, different. That's what He said. <clears throat> in chapter 2, verse 10, Malachi mentions this covenant that, that He had made with them. We've got a covenant of our fathers that God has made with us. Chapter 3, verse 1, we see this, this messenger of the covenant who will come. It's a messenger of the promise to Israel. I will be a God to you. You will be My people. It's the promise. And then in, in chapter 2, verse 4, even he mentions about the, uh, um, the Levites. How though they'd sinned badly, and though he was going to curse the Levites, yet, verse 4, I'm not going to destroy you because my covenant is going to continue with Levi. So he's going to destroy those wicked priests, sure, because they're in their sin. They will be punished. But in terms of a greater institution, in terms of greater people, the greater Levitical priesthood, he wasn't going to consume them. He was going to be faithful to them. So also, he's going to destroy the people in Israel, certainly who are engaged in their sins. But he's going to be faithful to the larger group of people, to his covenant. Israel is not going to be consumed. And, and through Scripture, you can see other places where this, this takes place as well. This same logic takes place. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8 says this, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them for the sake of His name that He might make His power known. Though Israel didn't understand God's wonders, they didn't understand His power at the Red Sea, you'd think that God would just say, Done with you! He's a faithful God to His covenant. He's a faithful God to His people. He still saved them. Why? Not so much for their sake, but more for His sake. He's a great delivering God. He wanted to put His faithfulness on display. He wanted to show His power. The time of the judges is exactly the same. It's Israel went astray. No reason why God shouldn't have just destroyed them all. Generation after generation forsook the Lord. They pursued the Baals. They, pers- they followed after other gods. They provoked the Lord to anger. The Lord did distress them, right? Brought the hand of discipline upon them, but He never destroyed them. And when you look through Judges, you say, why didn't He destroy them? Judges chapter 2, verse 1. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. <clears throat> the Lord's faithful to His covenant. Today after the cross, it's much the same. God's faithful to His saving promises. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. First Peter 5.10 After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Jesus made the promise, all the Father gives me will come to me, and know, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He's a faithful God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, you think, why is it that God won't leave us or forsake us? Is it because we as a church are so good and so faithful that the Lord, right, to the Lord that will merit His forgiveness or merit His faithfulness to us? It's not. It's not. The truth be known, we're much like Israel in many ways. 
2 Timothy 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Though even through times of difficulty and doubting and trial, God still remains faithful. I mean, that's why some of the, the Psalms really come in and really help us in time of distress. Is because at those times we're, we're drifting and we're, we're, we're failing and we're faithless and we want to believe, but we're in despair and yet God comes and helps oftentimes. It's in our weakness that God doesn't crush us. Why doesn't He crush us? Because He's faithful to His covenant. Are you glad? Let's never forget that. Let's remember His faithfulness. Second point, He's faithful to repenters. He's faithful to repenters. Verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from My statutes and have not kept them. Return to Me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The very last phrase there, what I read, Return to Me and I will return to you is really the the promise of all the Scriptures. See, God is, stands ready to receive all who repent of their sins. It's just who God is. Return to Me and I will return to you. You just go through the Scriptures and think about that. Sometimes it's used in those words. Sometimes it's not. Think about Cain. He was angry that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not him. Not his sacrifice. And so Cain... The Lord came to Cain and said, Why is your countenance fallen? Sin is crouching at the door. Its desires for you, you must master it. In other words, you're angry with this situation. Your countenance has fallen. You're straying. Sin is ready to consume you, Cain. But return and come back to me so that sin doesn't conquer you. So the people of Israel grumbled and complained in the wilderness. What was the solution that God would give them? Come back. Come back. Return to me and I will return to you. Wisdom calls in the street, Proverbs 1.23, Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you. Turn and come to me and the Spirit will come upon you. and You'll be helped. Jeremiah called out to Israel, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 3.12 I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from our evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Isaiah's call to repentance was vast and sweeping and all-encompassing. Isaiah 45:22. Turn to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. All the ends of the earth, turn to me. Return to me and I will return to you. And such a call of repentance carries right through the New Testament. John the Baptist, Jesus began the ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter preached repentance both to Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul preached repentance to all who would listen. And one of the most sweeping calls of repentance was in Acts 17. He's standing there in Areopagus, the Areopagus in, in Athens before all these scholars and skeptics hearing something new, and he says, Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore God is now declaring, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent and turn to Him. Yes, there have been many sins committed by many people for many years. But this has been a day of mercy. 
God has overlooked all of that. But now He's saying, repent and turn to everybody. It's the call of Scripture. Return to me and I will return to you. And it is. You need to be astonished here. You need to be amazed that the truth of the Gospel is that God will receive all those who repent and believe. That's what it says. Return to me and I will return to you. Those who return to Him, those who turn from their ways and turn to God's ways, God will open their arms, open His arms and receive them gladly to Himself. That's what Paul when he was converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, here's your order. You go to the Gentiles. Here's the purpose. Acts 26, verse 18. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. That's his message. Go and tell and turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan. Turn to God. Receive forgiveness of sins. Believe on Jesus. Always been the message of God. Have you ever thought it remarkable that God receives all who repents? Have you thought that remarkable? I mean, it hardly seems fair, does it, that a man can live his entire life in rebellion against the Lord, pursuing his own lusts and pleasures, spewing blasphemies from his mouth, failing to give any thought for his fellow man, living only for himself and for this world. And then at age 85, repent and God returns to him. Is that amazing? Think of the thief on the cross. We don't know much about his life, but we can only assume that he was pursuing his own pleasures, right? Stealing because he wanted up on the cross. He was hurling abuse at Jesus too first before he repented. It's amazing that as he just said a word, Lord, remember me when I come into your kingdom, that Jesus received him. And it gets better than that. Not only does he just receive, okay, okay, that's that's what I promised. You can you can come in. Now, is that is that how he receives someone who's been long term, long time in rebellion, and finally comes back to him? Is that how God receives that person? What story is coming to your mind? The prodigal son. Exactly. Son takes his inheritance, right? Half of everything goes to far off land. Spends it in sinful, wasteful living. At long last, he repents. And how does the father bring him back? He brings him the best robe. He gives him a ring on his finger. He puts sandals on his feet. He orders the fattened calf to be killed so he can rejoice. God is thrilled when the worst of sinners repent. And Jesus said the whole point of this is this, that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. It's amazing. It's amazing that God would rejoice like he does. But he does. There's rejoicing in heaven when any sinner repents. And in a very real way, the Lord loves it more when great sinners repent. He loved it when the city of Nineveh repented. 120,000 people led by the king himself on their knees repenting to the Lord. Jonah didn't like it. He says, I knew I shouldn't have preached them because I knew you're a faithful and merciful God. I knew that you'd accept their repentance. But that's where God is so unlike us. Maybe you can think about someone maybe who's transgressed you for years and years and years. If they came back to you repentantly, would you say, Woohoo! Come on in! It's hard. It's hard to think of that. But that's where God is. God loved it when Manasseh repented. 
You read in Second Chronicles 33 of the wickedness that he put forth. Amazing. God loved it when Nebuchadnezzar, proud Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein, it's the closest parallel to today, when he repented. God loved that when Manasseh repented. Paul loved it when Paul repented. The chief of sinners, persecutor of the church. And the situation actually in Israel's day is exactly the same. Look again at verse 7 to give the background, which gives a background to these people's lives. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. And so everything I've tried to describe to you about the repentance and the repentance of the worst of sinners comes right here. From the days of your fathers, you've not turned aside. You've turned aside from my statutes. You've not kept them. These are people who sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned some more and not turned back to God. And God says, though you have years of infidelity, though you have years of unfaithfulness, though you have years of unbelief and years of rebellion, the promise remains, return to me and I will return to you. Even in Malachi, they, they, they'd failed in their worship of the Lord. They'd failed to remain faithful to the Lord. They'd failed to keep their marriages. They'd complained against the Lord. And God says, though you've turned away from me, if you repent and come back to me, I'll be good on my promise and I'll return to you. I've been patient with you. I've not destroyed you as your sins have deserved because I've loved you. I've destroyed Edom, but I've not destroyed you. Are you convinced of my love? Are you convinced of my kindness? Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Are you going to repent? What will you do? Will you, will you return? I'm ready. Are you? You know, this passage here in Malachi is so similar to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, perhaps you remember it. It's time where unbelievers are mocking. Where's the promise of His coming? Everything remains just as it was in the beginning. And... Peter says, no, we don't live in a uniformitarian world. There are things that have changed. In fact, God destroyed the world once through water, and he's going to destroy the world again in fire. Right? That means coming judgment. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, the judgment is coming. But for some reason, it's delayed. Why? Because God is being patient. Why? He's given people time to repent. In that famous verse, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you can get there and discuss about the, the decrees of God and all this, but what it says is exactly what's taking place here in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. You have turned aside. You've turned aside. My judgment is coming. But I've been patient with you. If you return to me, I will return to you. It's the promise is coming. He's patient, waiting for repentance. The sad reality of this life is that there are some people who will never repent. God gives them every opportunity, gives them every show of display of His power, convinces them immensely, and they won't repent. Revelation chapter 16 is a terrifying account of the, the coming age of the world when, when the bold judgments are finally poured out upon the world. God gives seven bowls to seven angels, bowls of the wrath of God that He's going to pour out. These angels are going to pour out upon the world. Listen to Revelation 16, 8 and 9 when the fourth angel poured out His bowl. The fourth angel poured out His bowl upon the sun. It was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat as they blasphemed the name of God who has the power of these plagues and they did not repent 
so as to give Him glory. God puts forth His power and His majestic display to the people. He scorches them with fire and fierce heat. That's a foretaste of the coming judgment that these people would face. And rather than repenting, they blasphemed His name and did not repent so as to give Him glory. They complained at God because it was too hot outside. But the amazing thing is, if they'd have repented, God would have returned to them. And again, with the fifth bowl, in Revelation 16, a similar thing takes place. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom become darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Here they were in serious pain, gnawing their tongues. And how they respond? They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. God in His patience passes over. And, and even they said, God, you, you look good upon those who do evil. Do evil and He doesn't do anything to them, just lets them go. And do they repent? They don't. Or He says, okay, you've done evil, now I'm going to punish you. Sword, you know, fire coming down. Do they repent? They don't. And perhaps even what's worst of all, people of the Scriptures preach to them and they don't repent. Maybe you remember in, in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus told the story about Lazarus the rich man. Right? Lazarus was tasting the punishment of hell that was coming. And he just wanted to be soothed with a dip of a finger on the tip of his tongue. And uh, remember what he said? He said, I've got five brothers. Right? Send someone back. If someone raises from the dead, they'll be convinced. And Jesus says, no, they have Moses and the Scriptures. They'll, they'll be convinced of that. No, someone rises from the dead. Send someone back from the dead. And he said, no, no, no. They have Moses and the prophets. If those don't convince them, someone rising from the dead don't. And then the picture here is that Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures, this is sufficient. It's not like I'm sending you a second hand. This is better than someone rising from the dead. So God has been so merciful to us to give us of His Word. We have opportunity here. God is faithful to repenters. And I just ask if you experience that faithfulness. Experience that faithfulness. God is so kind. The wicked and turned away, return to me and I'll return to you. It's the kindness of God you're hearing today. Let's not be like those who blaspheme the God of heaven. Now when pains and sores and trials come upon us, let's not grumble and complain like they did in the wilderness. Right? They were thirsty. And they say, oh, God, give us water. You brought us out here to kill us. No, no, let's respond. God, you know our need. We've, we've acted sinfully. Please give us water. We need it. Totally different way you can respond. Well, finally, let's turn to our third point this morning. He's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to repenters. And here it is. He's faithful to givers. Verses 8 through 12. Will a man rob God? In fact, this is one way, actually, if you look in verse 7, of how it is that they should return. This is the answer. You return to me and I'll return to you. They say, how shall we return? He says, okay, well, let's look at your checkbook. Here's a way that you can return to me. Start showing it. Don't just mouth it. Start showing it. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? He says, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. 
If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when the Lord established the manner of worship in the days of the Old Testament, He's very clear. He's very clear as to how the tabernacle was to be built. He's very clear as to how it was to be furnished. He's very clear as to how it was to function. He's very clear as to how it was to be funded. He said that the tabernacle is, first of all, to be surrounded by this court, which is 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. This, this temple area that you have, it's going to be 15 feet. This tabernacle is 15 feet wide, 45 feet long. Put a, put a veil kind of right on two-thirds over so that there's a holy of holies and so that there's a holy place. And in the holy of holies, put the, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the, holy of, in the holy of holies, put that there. And then in the holy place, put the table of showbread and the altar of incense and um, something else. What is it? The lampstand, right? The what? The laver. It's the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense. The laver was outside. It was to be in the court area. The big bronze laver, laver was to be out there. The Levites were to be given a functionist priest. Not any other tribe. Take the, the tribe of Levites. These are those that I've claimed, and these are mine. God gave explicit directions how they were to be consecrated for the ministry. You read about that, Exodus chapter 26, Numbers 8 and 9, I think. The specific ways in which they are supposed to sacrifice to the Lord. And those that didn't, God killed them. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10. He was very clear on these things. He also gave directions how it was to be funded. People of Israel required to give their finances to support this project. It didn't just come out of anywhere. It came from the pockets of the people. They were to give every year in Israel were required to give a tenth of their income to support the livelihood of the priests who performed the duty of the sanctuary. Numbers 18, 21 to 32, you can read about it. Every year, those in Israel were to give another tenth of their income to the Levites for the use during the three major festivals which would be celebrated in Jerusalem each year. Deuteronomy 14, verses 22 to 27. These would have been fabulous feasts. The tenth of your income went to pay for three of these feasts. Every third year, the people of Israel were required to give a tenth more of their income for the needy, the Levite, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Each of these payments are called tithes. So when you think about Israel, how much were they supposed to tithe? 10% plus 10% plus 10% every three. About 23% is what they were supposed to tithe. And here in verse 8, we see that they weren't doing so. They were failing in their financial responsibilities. And God says, You are robbing me. I've demanded from you all that you support the work of the temple, but you have failed in your obligation. And the Lord was not happy about being robbed. Now, I've never been robbed, like mugged, you know, in the street. Um, but I can't imagine it would be a very pleasant experience. Maybe some of you have. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe held by gunpoint. You know, maybe someone punches you, takes you. I've never done it. But it can't be pleasant. But that's what these people were doing to God. And God wasn't happy. He said, verse 9, I'm going to curse you with a curse. We don't know what the curse was like. 
But if, anything, if it's anything like the, the curse of chapter 2, verse 3, where God says He's going to smear sewage sludge on the faces of the priests, we know it's going to be pretty bad. God is not happy at this point. And then God, a little bit like, return to me and I'll return to you, promises unbelievable potential blessings if they would just do what it is that God required. Look at verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, all 23%, so that there may be food in my house. Right? In other words, right? fund, the sacrif- fund the festivals. Right? Fund the priests. Fund the sacrifices. Fund the food. Provide for the alien, the Levite, the orphan, the widow. He says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. <laughs> Give all your 23%, O Israel, and then just watch the blessing that I will bring upon your house. And the picture that God gives this blessing is that of abundant provision. A blessing until it overflows. It's going to bubble like a bubbling brook that continues to overflow its bank just keeps coming and coming and coming like the widow's oil flask that she emptied and put on the shelf and emptied again and put on the shelf and emptied again and put on the shelf and it just kept coming and coming and coming. This ever supply God says I'm going to give to you. Your resources will continue to come. There will always be a replacement. Now what a promise. What a promise. Now let me ask you. Why wouldn't Israel give their tithe? Such abundant promise. Why wouldn't Israel bring it? Can you think of some reasons? I think the very same reasons why we don't give of our resources as well. Maybe they wanted to spend it on their own desires. Maybe they wanted something for their own pleasure and didn't want to give it to God. Maybe they lacked faith that God would provide for them. Maybe they were in debt. Didn't think they could afford it. Maybe they didn't understand the principle that the earth is mine and all it contains. Psalm 24, verse 1. Maybe they didn't understand the the blessing that would come to them. And you know what? We have the same difficulty in our giving. There are times we don't give because we want to spend it for ourselves. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? I know what I'm talking about. We lack faith that God will provide for us. We're in debt, perhaps. I think I can't afford to give to anybody. I'm in debt. How can I give? Maybe we don't understand that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. We're just stewards. God has given us, and the issue isn't how much we give, the issue is how much we keep. We don't understand the benefit of giving as well. I love the way that God challenges the Israelites here. He says, test me now in this. In the vernacular, it says, come on, I dare you. Come on, come on, come on, I dare you. You just pay me what you owe, and I'll see to it that you won't lack anything. You pay your bill, and I'll provide all of your needs. You give it to me first... And I'll see to it that you'll have enough to make your payments, your debt. You'll have enough to provide everything. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. You'll have what you need. You will be blessed. You will lack nothing. Well, at this point, really, we need to address a question. The question also often comes at this point. Well, how about today? Are we required to keep the tithe today? The question often comes. 
And answering that question, first of all, I think you need to realize I've put this 23.5% there. It's really what Israel was, was bound to pay was more of a tax than a tithe. All right? Because it was mandated, first of all. It was um, given to support the center of the governmental activities of the nation. Especially the feasts, right? We need to have a celebration. We need to have something going on here. We need to provide for our social security, right? We need to provide for the Levite and the alien and uh, the widow and the orphan and these who are, are helpless. And so, you know, there is, there is some sense where, you know, some of our tax dollars do go to that. But some of this money, particularly even a tenth, was specifically to help the spiritual leaders of the community. That's the Levites. So there is some parallel today. But it is interesting. When you come to the New Testament, you search in vain for any type of percentage that you should give to the Lord or give to others. You just won't find it. You can search and search and search and search and uh, you'll have difficulty finding any type of, of, of percentage that God says we should, we should give. And this fact has led some to conclude, and I think in some sense rightly, today we can give whatever we want to give. Give whatever we want to give. After all, we're not under law. We're under grace. We're not under the tithe. If you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you'll begin to see God's heart in giving. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves one who just gives. Right? Even out of poverty, these Corinthian people, people in Macedonia did. I've read and listened to those who talk about grace giving. You know, and I believe grace giving. I believe in grace giving. So I, I agree with these things. But yet, there's, there's a danger in this. All right? Because there are some who hear this, grace giving, give whatever we want, we're not under the tithe, the bond of the law, the tithe anymore. And it leads people astray. Because when they hear that, they hear, oh, we're not under law, we're under grace. The standards have been relaxed. I don't need to give as much as they did. And then when it actually works itself out in the lives of the people, they give less than what the tithe of Israel was, was called to do. And they become content in that. Huh, God, whatever, we're under grace. Not a problem. I'll just, I'll just give this. And those who do that don't understand grace. They're like those who say, let us sin that grace is made evident. Because think about what it means to be under grace and not under law. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But what did Jesus do? He said, I say to you, go further than just external murder. Go to the deep thoughts of your heart. If any of you are angry with one another, you're guilty of murder. He's taking the law and going deeper into the heart. Or he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And what does Jesus do? He takes it into the heart. He says it's deeper than the external act. It's the heart of the matter where you need to go. You've heard it said, love your enemy. Love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. But Jesus said, no, no, no. Don't love your neighbor. Hate your enemy. Love your enemy and pray for your enemy. Go deeper than that. Have a love which far exceeds any bound of the law. That's what it means to be under grace. It means we, ought, we desire to go far beyond the law. We aren't bound by external rules and regulations as if all is well when we meet some standard. We're motivated by our love for God to exceed these things. We want to go into the heart. How many of you pay taxes from the heart? <laughs> oh, man, I've got to write this check to the government. I don't want to do that. Right? In fact, my voting policy is anytime a city or government says more taxes, I always say no, 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 no. 
Now, I know, I'm not sure if Wayne Velk is here. I know we voted for roads this past year. We didn't vote for that, but it passed, but that's okay. I like good roads. But I just know that once taxes go up, you're always going to have them. They're always going to go up. They're always going to go up. They're always going to go up. You're always going to pay. So I, I don't like paying taxes. But I could be a Jew and pay my taxes and be totally right for the law. Is that the kind of giving God wants? He wants giving from the heart. We're not required to pay the tithe today. But we ought to have a desire to, to go far beyond. Right? I mean, how many of you say, well... You know, I've just not murdered. That's okay. Or to fall below that. You know, I almost murdered somebody, but I didn't murder him. I'm almost tithing, but I didn't murder him. This doesn't work. We ought to have a heart and a desire that, that says, I want to exceed the tithe. That's grace giving. God, you've done so much for me. What can I do but to, to, to really give back what's yours to begin with? What shall I render unto God for all these blessings? That should be our perspective. And if anything might encourage you on, the promises of Malachi are true in our text. Look at the promises of verse 11. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Know where your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, I'm going to bring a cool summer for you. It's not going to scorch your crops, the blazing heat of the sun. You're going to have a bountiful crop when you give properly to me. I'll keep the locusts away from eating your crops. I'll provide you with an abundance of rain. And I do believe that such promises can come across to us today. Someone might say, I can't afford to tithe. I'm in debt. I'm not making them up. I'm barely making as it is. And Randy Alcorn said sometimes, you say you can't afford to tithe? Let me ask you. If you would give 10% of your income away, would you die? That's what he says kind of puts things in perspective. But it may not it may just be if you say you can't afford to tithe or you're not or you don't think, it may just be that if you step out and prioritize your giving to the Lord, it just might be that He protects you financially. Like for instance, I think about um, you have a car that you expect to break down. And you know you've got a new car kind of on the horizon. Perhaps if you give, God will extend the life of that car. Maybe if you have a sales job, God will just give you a few more sales. Perhaps. Maybe the Lord will move in the heart of your boss to give you a raise. Maybe that will take place. Maybe the Lord gives your family excellent health so that like your health bills are like totally eliminated. Maybe the tree doesn't fall on your house. The Lord's able to prosper you financially in ways that you'll never see, you'll never know. But the providential sovereign hand of God could be helping you on the back end. And the Lord certainly is able to bring disasters, right? He can throw your back out. Oh, flat on your back, can't work for two weeks. (laughs) You just lost your wages. You can have an electrical fire in your garage, causes $20,000 worth of damage. Japan, maybe you have insurance, but still you're losing all that time. Not fully going to recoup. Maybe you can lose your job. Maybe you get an accident, total your car. See, God can do these things. And I think about, um, I was thinking about this recently. That Avon, I bought a photocopier 10 years ago, 12 years ago. 
10 years ago? I don't know, something like that. It's, it's been a long time. And, um, you know, we've been involved in ministry for a long time and have run literally probably tens of thousands of copies on this copier over the years. And I, I'm not sure, Dad, when was it? it was about five years ago you were asking to get a copier? Yes, said, hey, what? I said, we've got this copier, and it just runs and runs and runs. And it goes, and it just keeps going. And Get this copier. It's a Xerox. I don't even know what it is. And um, so Dad went out and got that copier, and he just called me and said, how well does your copier work? And uh, we, you don't use it very much even. And we just plow through this thing. This thing has just been going and going and going and going and going and going. And going. So who's tithing? <laughs> That's an example of a way in which God could keep something going and bless you in ways that you don't even know. You have no idea the way that God's going to keep and protect you. And I think that is the providential hand of the Lord. How He does it, we don't know, but He does it nevertheless. Here He's given farm illustrations about no one's going to devour your, your fields. right? No one's going to destroy your fruits. Your, your vine won't cast its grapes. You'll be able to pick it off the vine. You'll be, you'll be blessed. And we don't know how God does it. We know He does. Uh, a verse in Proverbs 11, verse 24 is a great one. There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. In other words, what He has, He's just scattering out and then He looks and His, his basket is still full. And He's scattering out some more and it's, it's still full. There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more and there's one who withholds what is justly due. Ooh, I need this for myself. I need this for myself. And yet it results only in want of a sudden, moss and rust come and decay it. And that very thing that he thought he needed, he's going to protect, he no longer has. He's only in want now. That's how God works. The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Somehow, in some way, I do believe it is a principle across all of Scripture that God blesses the giver. Now, the extent to which you give is, is up to you in many ways. God knows your ability and what you can do. But I do put for you the blessing that Jesus paid to this old widow in Mark chapter 12, right at the end, when she gave just two little cents of all she had. She gave all of her money away. And Jesus lifted her up and said, she gave more than all of these rich people put in the coffers. And I think there's a way, and God knows exactly where your finances are. He knows the financial choices you've made. He knows where they are. But He knows when you give sacrificially. He knows when you extend yourself. He knows when you're trusting Him and believing Him to provide. And I just say, God is faithful. You say amen? He's faithful. And He's faithful in this instance to givers. His faithfulness will be evident for all to see. Should the people of Israel stop robbing God and give them the full tithe? Look at the blessing that God promised to give them. Verse 12. All the nations will call you blessed. Edom and Persia and Babylon and Syria will will look to Israel and will call them blessed if they show their repentance starting at their pocketbooks and pay the tax they owe. And I do believe that and it's true for our nation as well. Randy Alcorn made this staggering statement, which 
I think it's probably true. He noted that the average church member gives about 2.5% of his income to charities. Okay, That's not even to church. That's to any kind of charity. Um, church, parachurch, United Way, muscular dystrophy, whatever. The average church member gives about 2.5%. So something's, something's wrong with this grace-giving deal, I think, if uh, 2.5% is the average. And on top of that, there are some very, very wealthy Christian people who give lots of money. And so that what that means is the average churchgoer has brought the percentage way up to 2.5% giving across America, across the land. He said this, If Western Christians all practice tithing, the task of world evangelism and feeding the hungry would be well within reach. Because many Christians, once they begin to tithe, also give free will offerings beyond the tithe. The work of God could be multiplied in every corner of the world. Think about if um, average Christian gives 2.5%. Think about the implication if the Christian in Western America would give even a 10%. What would that mean about the number of churches we could have, number of pastors, number of missionaries, number of funds? Go- what would that mean? You'd have a threefold increase, right? Increase of 300% of the number of people that could be supported for Christian work. Unbelievable. And it would make a dent, I believe, World evangelism, and I firmly believe that God's hand of blessing would be upon our nation in great ways. It is a travesty when we have been blessed far beyond any nation in the history of the world and we have given percentage-wise less and less and less than the average American gave during the Great Depression. Something very sad about that. Yes, we may be giving more today than they did back then, but they... in in poverty and want, gave far more percentage-wise than we are today. Think about the widow. And think about these in Malachi's day. You don't, don't expect these people to be rich people here in Malachi's day. Um, think about the context. They were, they were enslaved in Babylon. <clears throat> then these are those who forsook everything, came to live in the refugee camp. These are refugee camp people coming and living in Jerusalem, kind of intense and just getting their houses and just putting this thing up and putting it up. And God's saying, I want, I want my tithe from you. And God says, I get the tithe from you, just a small ragamuffin group of people and God is going to bless them as a nation and God would certainly bless our land as well. I would love for America to be seen as a delightful land, but it's sad to say that we are so involved, I think, in too many of the lusts of the flesh to get there. And yet you can get there. And God will pour out His blessing upon you. It's because God's faithful to givers. He'll bless individuals who give her the resources together. He'll bless nations whose people are givers. And I just encourage you to be givers. Give to the church. Give to your missionaries. Give to other people. Give to those in need. And watch God pour out His blessings. Uh, I encourage you to take take this passage here. And God says, test me now in this, verse 10. Test him and see if he stands true. Because God is faithful. He's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to repenters. He's faithful to givers. May we never forget these things. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray that you would help us to see of your faithfulness. That we would be those who who delight in you, who trust in you, who know your ways. And... um, who can proclaim even through difficult times. Because difficult times lay ahead of of every single one of us. 
we haven't lived through difficult times because we're not old enough yet. Because difficult days will come. And yet through those times, Lord, I pray that we would be able to say, You are faithful. You are faithful. You are faithful. It's a comfort to us. It's an opportunity to give You glory for others. I pray these points might sink into our hearts and our minds. You're faithful to Your covenant. You're faithful to Your saving promises. Lord, we believe and trust in You. You've got Your hand of protection upon us. And though through fiery trials our pathway shall lie, God's grace, all sufficient, will be our supply. And You are faithful to repenters. God, I pray that all of us, like Luther said in his theses, Lord, all of our life would always be a constant attitude of repentance. We would always be repenting. Always be turning to You. Because we are prone to wander. So I pray that we would come back to You. And Lord, I pray that we would be givers. I pray at Rock Valley Bible Church that we would come with open hands to, to give and extend to others. I thank You that You have provided abundantly for Rock Valley Bible Church. And uh, we don't have financial difficulties in any way. And uh, whether You stir the hearts of these people or not, we are going to continue on. And Lord, but I would pray that You would pour out abundant blessings upon us for the sake of Nepal, uh, for the sake of other places, Lord, to reach them with the gospel of Christ. I pray that you would show your faithfulness among us, that we would be able to proclaim as Jeremiah did. Your compassions are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.